This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. A change at Goldman Sachs. Not only did they release earnings tomorrow before the market opens, but they're getting a new chief executive in the form of David Solomon. He is currently the president and chief operating officer. Here to tell us more about Goldman Sachs is our own Allison Williams, senior financial research analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and Sri Natarajan. He is our finance reporter for Bloomberg News, and you can follow Sri on Twitter, as we all do, at Nats. That's S-R-I-D-I. N-A-T-S. All right, Shridi Nats, what kind of company is David Solomon inheriting as he takes over from Lloyd Blankfein? One that's very different from what it looked like in 2011 and 12 when Goldman Sachs, still in the aftermath of the crisis, was, was the poster child of all the misdeeds on Wall Street. We seem to have come far enough away from the crisis where you don't hear that talk a lot in the hallways of 200 West Street. And you have a Goldman Sachs that's talking about this pivot from this traditional trading powerhouse, uh, a powerful advisor to all the big companies, to one that wants to move to new areas such as consumer lending, which they're doing through their new platform like Marcus. Allison, much has been made over the fact that Lloyd is a trader and David Solomon is an investment banker. But from my viewpoint, wasn't Solomon chosen because he's going to carry on in the blank fine manner? What's what's the deal there? Well, I think uh, two things. So uh, I think one of the strong points about Goldman is just the very strong, consistent culture throughout the firm. And everyone's going to be one or another. And even though trading is the biggest part of their revenue, banking has also done well under Lloyd. And I think the reverse is going to be true under Solomon. And so I do think that, um, you know, while banking is obviously going to be a very important business, it's very important to growth over the long term, trading is still going to be a significant share of the business. Uh, And then to your point, if you look at some of the history of of Solomon. So he he does he is considered more of a banker, but look at some of the products where he has some expertise, high yield, leveraged lending and the like. And um, those are obviously some pretty important areas, important to trading and important to uh, to risk. Um, you know, Goldman does have sort of that that culture of risk management, and so I think that even though there is a lot made that that he comes from the banking side, I wouldn't expect a drastic change in in the overall mix revenue of the business. Sri, just tell us a little bit more about Goldman Sachs and its Marcus online platform, and what are they trying to do with that? Well, Goldman Sachs, the lender to the biggest companies in the world, the advisor to the biggest companies in the world to to mergers, is now turning to a very different clientele. They're going out there and willing to make loans uh, to people across the spectrum. In fact, in the first quarter, they said probably north of 10% of their loans are in the subprime category. They're going out there and courting the ordinary folks for new loans, which is not your traditional Goldman Sachs. Allison, 
Do you concur? Is this going to be a big area for Goldman Sachs, or is this just an attempt to kind of make sure that they are in the online lending world because there are so many non-bank financial companies that have moved into lending in an right. online space? So I, I do think it is a significant change for Goldman Sachs because it is addressing a client that they have not traditionally uh, been involved with. However, to your point, they have done things in the past, you know, you know, way back when and around the 2004-ish time frame when a lot of Goldman's peers were getting into subprime lending and buying subprime lenders – um, you know, Goldman's strategy was that they didn't want to be they didn't want to be buy a big originator, but they did buy this very small one just to learn and to understand um, the economics and to understand what they were doing from a trading standpoint. So I think um, there definitely is that as well. But but the the fact that they've come out and, and declared that they th- think that this is an opportunity is a little different. If you go back to that time frame, I think they said very strategically why they were doing what they were doing, and I think that um, in this case they have. Have said that they do see um, an opportunity uh, just purely making these types of loans. Sri, so going back to what you said earlier about the words vampire squid not being spoken as much as they used to, and that was the nickname of the, uh, of the, uh, of the bank after the 2008 to 2009 financial crisis, what have they done in order to become a more boring bank, to become a bank that wasn't a target of people that were uh, angry because they, they did uh, cause a lot of the uh, turmoil in 2008 and also profited from it. Uh, I mean, one reason I can probably think of is time heals all wounds. It's not like they're a significantly different bank, but also in the post-crisis era that we're living in, there have been significant new regulations. You cannot be the same sort of trading powerhouse that you used to be, and just staying out of the headlines without without frequent number dropping every quarter of the enormous amounts of money they've been making in trading allows you to stay under the radar, perhaps. A lot of those regulations are going going away, though, right? Well, and maybe we await the rise of Goldman Sachs again on the trading front. Allison, just quickly, is there anybody who competes with Goldman Sachs that is doing it better? Well, I think that it, I think if you look across different businesses, um, you know, you could perhaps point to different relative strengths and, and and weaknesses across different businesses. I think what Goldman Sachs has done really well is to. Um, you know, sort of stick to their knitting, stick to what they uh, feel that that they are are good at, and they are, um, you know, among their peers, the, the bank that has stayed the most committed to the institutional capital markets business. Allison Williams of Bloomberg Intelligence, Sri Natarajan, finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about David Solomon succeeding Lloyd Blankfein, perhaps as early as tomorrow. Here's a little bit of data for initial public offerings. $30 billion so far this year. Uh, compared to $23 billion last year, June was the busiest month for IPOs in three years. And to talk about it, we've got Jonathan Crane. He's the chairman of KeyBank Capital Markets Equity Underwriting Committee. He's, called, he's on the phone from Cleveland, Ohio, which is no longer LeBron James, Ohio. I guess it's now J.R. Smith, Ohio. Um, Jonathan, thanks for coming on. We've got uh, in your notes that you sent us, you said there's a number of household name private companies coming to market this year or next. Care to tell us what they are? 
Uh, well, Bob and Tim, I, 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 we're in fact working on a, no, a number of those, so I'm going to be a little reticent about that. But but there's really two kinds of backlog. The backlog is very strong right now. But keep in mind that since the Jobs Act, uh, there's really no need to file publicly until you shortly be, before a roadshow begins. So you really don't have the data that you used to have on on the backlog. So there's a formal backlog that's about 44 deals right now, in which there's been some filings recently. And there's what I might call a you know a sort of a speculative backlog, companies like uh, that have been on the list for a long time. Companies like Airbnb and Uber and Dell and Pinterest and uh, Ramco, Tencent, people like that, that, uh, you know, large companies that could be coming to public uh, the markets in the next couple of years. Jonathan, let's uh, talk, if you can, about some uh, area, one area of the marketplace that is a little bit different, which are these special purpose acquisition companies, SPACs. Uh, what do they do and what does this tell you about the nature of the IPO market? Well, there's no, there's no question right now. The IPO market very strong, as you mentioned. People are looking for growth uh, with with the uh, indices, the S and P, and the Dow sort of stuck in ranges since the January highs. The IPO market has been certainly the place to get growth. You've had an average, I think, return so far of about 30% on on average for IPOs, and almost 60% mid 50s or so for technology deals. So there's a real hunger for growth out there. SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies that you mentioned are sort of an interesting uh, concept that's been around for a while. Really, uh, it's it's almost private equity in the public markets in which investors are giving a, quote, blank check to a management team uh, to go out and make an acquisition. And uh, they have a couple years to do that. And if they're unsuccessful, the money is, is in fact, returned to the investors. So it's a way to sort of uh, be involved in the private equity business in the public markets. You also say that convertible debt issuance is way up. Can you explain briefly to our listeners what exactly that is and why it's up? Well, a, a convertible debt is debt that is issued by a company in which uh, they, they, they agree to pay an interest rate, often 1% or 2%, in some cases 0%. In exchange for that, if their stock appreciates, the investor has the ability to swap their debt for the stock. So it has the advantage for the issuer, who's getting a very low interest rate, and if they have to sell their stock, they're doing it at a, at a much higher price than currently exists, so the dilution is, is reduced. On the other hand, the investors know that if the stock does not appreciate, they're going to get their money back uh, with potentially some interest. So sort of a win-win situation. Uh, you, see, uh, you, you see times where the market is very, very strong, and right now it's one of those. There's been probably a 50% increase in the issuance of converts just this year. Jonathan, what are you seeing in terms of private equity firms taking uh, their companies public? Well, it's, it's certainly been strong. Probably 60% of the uh, the deals this year, the IPOs have been in technology and in um, in healthcare, typically pharmaceutical, biotech companies. And a number of those are, in fact, backed by private equity firms. And clearly, it's been a very good way for those firms to achieve liquidity. Uh, but they're not all backed by uh, private equity. Some are spinoffs of public companies. Some are, have been able to grow without the use of private equity. Now, very wisely, I think you say it's a cyclical market, and uh, there's and there's the window always closes eventually, is how you put it. What kinds of things do you see that could possibly put a crimp in this uh, this bonanza that we've been going through? 
Well, right, right, right now the backlog is strong, and uh, you're seeing a, a, a real push right now. I think there are ten deals scheduled to price this week. You're seeing a big push to get things done before the typical August slowdown. I also would expect to see a very busy post Labor Day period as we lead up to the uh, November elections. But ultimately, it is a cyclical market, and the, the the window will close. One of two things happens: there is some external event that hits the broad market, like well, you, the things we we talk about every day, trade, trade concerns, interest rates, inflation, international tensions, recession fears, that sort of thing. And then secondly, uh, the market can be spoiled by too much success. Uh, the, uh, the Too many companies try to get into the marketplace. Perhaps some weaker companies try to get done. They don't perform as well, and investors will tend to pull back. Those are the two things that historically have happened, one of those two things. All right, we've got to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Jonathan Crane is the chairman of KeyBank Capital Markets Equity Underwriting Committee, joining us from Cleveland, talking about the world of initial public offerings. One thing that he, uh, that, that Jonathan mentioned that I didn't know about was that there's no need to file publicly till the, there's the road show. Right. And that, that's new. That was in the tax cut uh, law. I didn't know about that. That's something that's quite new in the whole IPO uh, yes. business, isn't it? And indeed, uh, just to mention that I believe Sonos is still on the list to go uh, public and uh, Constellation Therapeutics, uh, pharmaceuticals uh, in the Boston area also. Uh, Some of these companies stay on that list for a long time, don't yeah. they? Well, we'll have to see what happens. It'd be interesting to see if uh, Uber, Airbnb yeah. uh, go public uh, this year. Lots of shopping around going online in less than 12 minutes. Oh, my goodness. I'm getting a little bit, uh, my heart's fluttering, you know, for Prime Day. Uh, Amazon.com is having their, I guess, uh, Christmas in July. Here to talk about it in our studio is Marissa Tarleton. She's an analyst and chief marketing officer for Retail Me Nots, based in Austin, Texas. And way across the country where uh, do they have to wait three more hours for it? In Seattle is Spencer Soper. He's our technology reporter for Bloomberg News. Spencer, do you have to wait three more hours or it happens all at once? No, it happens. It's kicking off uh, same time here, noon noon Pacific. What do you, what are you in the market time. for? And nothing. <laughs> it's not going to buy a darn thing. What do you? Should we just throw up our hands and save him, Spencer? <laughs> save him. Tell, no, tell it was me. the perfect. It was the perfect uh, response. Absolutely. I wanted to ask Spencer because um, he he's my type of guy. Should we just throw up our hands and surrender to the one big store? Uh, is it just has Amazon just taken over? No, I mean, well, yes and no, right? They, they're so now. Now they're capturing about fifty percent um, of all e-commerce sales in the U.S. That's the latest uh, estimate from eMarketer, and that's up from like you know low forties. Uh, so, so yes, they they continue to gobble up market share. But the big opportunity on on a day like Prime Day is for. Uh, competitors to try to draft off some of this publicity. People are spending. You know, Amazon's really been publicizing this event. People feel like spending, and a lot of people aren't just going to take Amazon's word for it that it's a good deal. So if they see something that they like on Amazon, they're likely to pop over to Walmart or eBay or Target uh, to see if they can find a similar, the same item or something like it for less. That's so right, there, will yeah. be some, there will be some shopping around, and, and that's the opportunity for the, for the competitors. We're definitely seeing every time we not that Prime Day is bigger than Amazon. This is now, Prime Day is now the Cyber Monday of the summer. So to, to echo that point, we're seeing over 120 plus retailers participate because there's there's people out there shopping not only because it's Amazon Prime Day, but also because it's the start of back to school. 
Marissa's company, Retail Me Not, says that uh, shoppers plan to spend an average of $167 on Amazon Prime Day this year. Uh, considering that Spencer's not going to spend anything, there's somebody out there who's going to spend $334. And believe me, I had to do the math uh, on paper. Um, you said to me earlier, Marissa, that 167 seems a little low to you. What are people buying? It's interesting. We th- uh, we, what we see from the Retail Me Not data is about half the purchases are on back-to-school items. So these are traditional things like electronics and backpacks and accessories. But retailers are um, capitalizing on the shoppers, and they're out there offering deals on jewelry and home electronics and, and smart home devices. So it's really it, – it runs the gamut, similar to a Cyber Monday, that retailers are all piling on and consumers. Consumers are out there looking for online deals specifically. This is an online holiday that we're going to see today. Spencer, speak if you can about the acquisition of Whole Food and how this ends up being a part of the Amazon strategy. Yeah, well, there's a big emphasis on getting people into Whole Foods, on getting um, uh, shopper, you know, prime members acquainted with Whole Foods. There's a big like discount, ten percent. Uh, back, you know, for Whole Foods purchases, there's like a, they've basically made Whole Foods an extension of the Prime uh, Customer Loyalty Reward Program. So they definitely want to try to get Prime members into Whole Foods. They want to get uh, just shoppers in general into Whole Foods and really use the day to illuminate their grocery offering. Is that is that a loss leader for them? Do you believe? Um, I it, it very well it very well could be. I mean, they're offering discounts, but it's still Whole Foods is still pretty pricey compared to a lot of other a lot of other grocery stores. But uh, you know, they're basically going to use the brick and mortar uh, uh, presence to showcase um, uh, to showcase things too. So they this will be the first year where, where they have these 400 stores and they can showcase their Alexa devices, their gadgets, that sort of thing, as, as well as just uh, you know letting people see what they're selling before they buy it, which is, uh, you know, different than, than the online experience. I personally am always looking for artisan small batch celery, so maybe I'll go do that uh, during Prime Day. Marissa, how does Prime Day um, stack up to Cyber Monday? So it's a good question. When you look at the, the spend levels Consumers are going to spend about a quarter of what they would have spent on Cyber Monday. So it's getting there. The thing that's really important, though, is it's growing. So we're seeing a significant number of retailers, even this morning versus last year, participate. And more and more consumers say this is the official kickoff of back to school. So with every year, I think there's more momentum. But a quarter of Cyber Monday is not a minor number. Uh, Marissa, just a question about Retail Me Not. I noticed, for example, that you offer coupons, $15 cash back on $30 purchases at JCPenney. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of the kinds of companies that are coming to you with offers? Does that demonstrate that we uh, are seeing a strength or weakness in retail? Yeah, I think um, it's it's about smart retail, I think. So the, the, the biggest retailers out there this morning so far are ones like JCPenney, Sears, Bed Bath & Beyond, Macy's, Best Buy. And they're all out there with broad sweeping offers. So Macy's is an example at 25% off and free shipping. There's always some exclusions. But they're going out with Cyber Monday-like offers to be competitive. What we're seeing in our data is that m- the majority of consumers are out there shopping today on Prime Day and not just on Amazon. They're intending to shop around, either on sites like Retail Me Not or other major e-commerce sites like Macy's. So the smartest retailers are looking at short-duration, prime-like promotions to say, hey, we're playing too. Don't forget about us. 
Spencer, you've got an, uh, a story out on uh, Bloomberg.com today and the, and the Bloomberg Terminal. Rival retailers try to catch ride on Amazon Prime's tailwinds. It's an excellent article, and I just want to point up one thing. Amazon's taking asking more of its Prime members these days, having jacked up the annual fee to $119 from $99 in April, its first increase since 2014. With all the with with the with the dominance of Amazon, do you think that uh, what first of all what kind of um, uh, how much does does the uh, the prime do the prime people contribute to Amazon earnings? And also, do you think they'll jack up the price again? Um, well, so they've uh, Amazon's disclosed more than a hundred million global prime members. Um, they're saying that the price hike is not uh, denting um, the, their momentum. It's a critical part of their of their platform, you know, Prime members uh, spend more than double um, what non-Prime members spend on the platform. So it's a it's a key key selling point for them. So uh, and and that's what they say Prime Day is is a way to reward reward re- these members, retain them, and also you know spread you know hopefully attract some some new members. Marissa, just last point to you. I noticed, for example, on your website that you've got 40% off regular menu prices for Papa John's. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how quickly. Do companies offer these promotions? Is this something that's in the works for many weeks or months in advance, or is this the kind of site where they can offer them based on what happens in one day? Yeah, that's one of the benefits of a marketplace like Retail Me Not is we can make adjustments real time. So some of those offers are planned a few weeks in advance. And the interesting thing you may recall is that Prime Day last year was a whole week ahead. Correct. So you started to see offers coming out a whole week earlier than Amazon was ready to go. So it's really interesting to watch the changes and the, the fact that most of them are hourly and daily changes. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. Marissa Tarleton is the retail analyst and chief marketing officer for Retail Me Not. And, of course, Spencer Soper, our technology and e-commerce reporter for Bloomberg News. And you can follow Spencer, who's in our Seattle bureau, at Spencer Soper on Twitter. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. She is the one. Her name is Amy Hood, and she won back Wall Street and helped reboot Microsoft, according to our next guest, who is guest who is Dina Bass. Uh, we're going back out to Seattle to talk to Dina. She's our technology reporter for Bloomberg News. Hi, Dina. Thanks a lot for getting on the phone with us. Hi, absolutely. Can you give us just a little bit of, about uh, Amy Hood, just to, to give our listeners a little background? Sure, absolutely. She's been at Microsoft since 2002 in a variety of financial roles. And then in 2013, which, you know, if you remember back five years ago, was about the the absolute low point for Microsoft. She was appointed as chief financial officer. Um, You know, it was was a dark time (laughs) and very, uh, very crazy for the next couple of months. They did a disastrous acquisition. Steve Ballmer left. Tatiana Nadella came in. And since then, she's really partnered with Nadella to completely uh, remake, overhaul the company. Company, to win back investors, to win back employees, to to set up a situation where where customers are you know engaged and enthusiastic about the company's products, and she's really been much more influential than uh, is typical for a chief financial officer, and and certainly that had been typical for a chief financial officer at Microsoft. Dina, in your story, you speak about how her job has changed in a way that is designed to keep people at the company. She's not just figuring out what the balance sheet should look like and where to spend money. Can you explain? 
Yeah, absolutely. That came from, you know, I heard her speak to a, a group of new employees on their first day, and she was talking a lot about that. She spends a lot of time trying to make sure that people are engaged, that they're empowered, that they are interested in their jobs. And, you know, then when I spoke to some of the people that work for her, including uh, Bridget Link, who oversees her, you know, Hood's complete overhaul of the finance department, you know, she really gave Bridget a, a lot of room to run and decide how to overhaul the finance department. I, at the same time, Hood is very demanding. Ending. She, you know, she gives her people a lot of a lot of leeway to decide what to do. But you know, as Link said to me, the only thing she asked for was a quote flawless execution. Uh, but she she really spends a lot of time trying to make sure that people are motivated and, and interested in, in being at the company and feel like they're they're doing good work without getting uh, second guessed. And Microsoft was previously a place where the culture was a bit difficult, um, and, and Satya Nadella's done a lot of work to overhaul that, and also a place where there was a lot of micromanaging and a lot of you know second guessing, particularly on the finance side, and people would go into these sort of brutal budget meetings and things things like that. You now, flawless execution—that's what everybody expects from Pim Fox. <laughs> now, Amy Hood was hired by Steve Ballmer, and almost immediately, uh, Satya Nadella. Well, the, there was the change, and then a little bit later, Satya Nadella came in. Was there? Uh, it sounds like from your story that it was kind of a seamless transition. How did they? How did they figure that out? Nadella had actually worked together. She had been, prior to this job, she'd been the divisional CFO for Microsoft's Office Group, which included for a few years a business that, that Nadella ran. So they knew each other well and they, they kind of trusted each other. And, you know, from what I hear from people now, they have this really symbiotic relationship where they, they really partner and he, he trusts her judgment quite a bit. And, you know, what's different, uh, you know, Steve Ballmer used to make both the strategic decisions and the budgeting decisions. Uh, Nadella decides where he wants the company to go, and Hood translates that into budget allocations. She determines what that's going to mean in terms of financial resources. Um, and that, that's very different, and, and, you know, that's kind of how they partner. In order to do that, she's transformed, uh, you know, and her people have transformed a lot of the software that they use for that, taking advantage of Microsoft's sort of cloud-based machine learning software, which they're trying to sell to customers. Hood's finance department uses that to decide, um, you know, and, and to decide how, uh, you know, make predictions for revenue, make predictions for hiring, to figure out how they should be spending, um, to see what, which kind of contracts are at risk. So they're deploying a lot of their own technology to make this a more seamless process. What does, uh, what does Amy Hood say about deals that don't necessarily work out? I'm thinking, for example, of Nokia and maybe even Skype, although that goes back quite a ways. And what about their LinkedIn acquisition? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I, I spoke to her a lot about that. Nokia was, uh, you know, Steve Ballmer and she negotiated that deal. And then, it, you know, Nadella came in and it, it was pretty clear fairly early on that um, that the deal wasn't going to make the numbers that, that Hood had forecast. And, you know, what I understand from the executives at Microsoft was that once the forecast was clearly not going to happen, it was her that really pushed to, uh, you know, rip the Band-Aid off quickly. Um, and she, you know, she said to me, look, she, she knows she's, she will make mistakes and she's comfortable with making tough decisions once she has the data. She sort of felt like the, the idea of doing something because you've sunk a bunch of money into it doesn't make any sense. 
mindsets. Um, you know, she sort of said to me, you don't have a time machine. You, you just learn from it and you move on. You, you can't reverse it. Now, in terms of LinkedIn, I think what we're seeing is that Nadella and Hood are trying to change the way Microsoft does acquisitions a little bit. They're trying to focus only on deals that are uh, growing businesses and growing markets, and where appropriate, they, they let them run on their own rather than kind of meddling with them. So far, the LinkedIn results have been have been good. Wall Street's been pleased with them. But, you know, of course, we'll have to see uh, how that turns out in the next few years. We're, we're 18 months out, and, you know, Microsoft has done deals in the past that looked great or at least better 18 months out than they do now. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, Dina Bass is our technology reporter for Bloomberg News. You can follow Dina on Twitter, at Dina Bass, joining us from Seattle. Shares of Microsoft, they are up more than 20% so far this year. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. With just a smidge less than 10 minutes to the close of stock trading in New York, we have Hank Smith. He's the co-chief investment officer for Haverford Trust, and he helps manage about almost $8 billion from Radnor, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and Hank, thanks for being with us. You say that investors should go on the offensive rather than sit back on the defensive. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, first of all, we favor equities over fixed income. And so our asset allocation would uh, be skewed to uh, the maximum exposure one can really accept. In other words, can go to sleep with at night. Uh, and then, two, at the margin, we've gotten a little bit more offensive within the equity uh, portfolio um, in terms of uh, industrials, uh, basic material, uh, financials to a certain extent, technology, uh, enlightened just at the margin of some of our uh, more defensive areas, such as consumer staples and, uh, and health care. But overall, it is still considered a balance between offense and defense with a slight skew toward the offense. Hank Smith, I'm wondering if you could just give us your thoughts on the banking industry and whether banks are a good investment, specifically some of the larger banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo. I know we've got uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, they're set to report uh, tomorrow before the open. Yes, Pam, uh, we do think uh, uh, banks are a good investment. And, you know, here we are. Uh, 10 years into an expansion, 10 years into a bull market, uh, and the banking sector looks very strong, very healthy. We have an expression here, uh, if there's a problem, banks usually find it. Uh, but not, not right now. Banks are in excellent shape. They're very well capitalized. Uh, and so the recent sell-off this spring in, in banks, we think, uh, represented a terrific opportunity. And there are quite a few tailwinds uh, that we think um, are in play for a bit. Uh, deregulation, a return of capital, and the fact that we have a very strong economy are all uh, are all positives. One worry, though, is the flattening of the yield curve. We do not think it's going to invert, uh, but it's certainly something to pay attention to. Hank, uh, 
Longtime listeners of this show will know that I am a pessimist. I'm a bear, and I'm going to find anything that I could possibly pick at that bothers me, even in the in a, in an extravaganza like we've had for the last ten years. You write that uh, the 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 the, tar- the talk of tariffs is not keeping you awake at night, and this is uh, you say you believe that Trump will change course before a large market drop would occur. What uh, in the president's behavior has led you to believe that? Well, uh, the president is keenly focused on the stock market. And so back uh, in the 90s, there was the expression uh, coined by Ed Yardeni, the bond vigilantes. Uh, today, they're probably the stock market vigilantes. And I think if we saw a significant drop in the markets, you would see uh, some uh, attributed to uh, tariffs. You would see the president uh, back off uh, there. Uh, so far, the tariffs have been relatively small, both uh, the ones enacted and the ones talked about, relative to the size of the fiscal stimulus, both uh, in tax cuts, increased spending, repatriation, and harder to quantify, but still very stimulative, the regulatory rollback. What are your thoughts, Hank Smith, on the defense sector, defense contractors, in as much as uh, President Donald Trump has asked our European allies in NATO to step up their defense spending, and we seem to be continuing that here in the United States with the passage of the defense budget? Do you believe that those are the kinds of companies worth owning? Well, uh, I wish we owned more. We uh, have some exposure in United Technologies, but none of the pure plays like Raytheon and Lockheed, uh, to name two. Uh, but I think uh, the prospects there are are good. I don't think uh, the world's getting any safer, and uh, there's going to be a continued uh, military buildup, and new technology is just creating uh, a constant uh, demand to upgrade uh, uh, defense uh, defense systems. So uh, we like them. Uh, Lockheed in particular, they've all had very big runs. If, if there was a pullback, I think uh, we would be buyers. Hank, we've got about a minute to go and, and a little less than five minutes to the close of the markets. Getting back to the offense versus defense, some of the offensive stocks you named were utilities and telecommunications. Do you have any names for us? Well, no, that would be in the def- in the defensive side, and those are two areas uh, we are not exposed to. So, our defensive exposure, if you will, is in consumer staples and healthcare. We are not in uh, reach utilities uh, and telecommunication because uh, they're uh, too yield sensitive. Not enough growth for the income that uh, that you're getting and the PE that you have to pay for. And just uh, finally, uh, Hank, uh, what's uh, what's the big what's the thing that you would stay away from? Give you about twenty seconds. U.S. Treasuries, we continue to think, are overvalued. We'd be underweighted in all fixed income, um, primarily. Good stuff, Hank Smith. You are the the co-chief investment officer for Haverford Trust in Radnor, Pennsylvania. Thanks a lot for coming on and easing our way into the, uh, the close of the markets today. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 